Hello, Baltimoreans. What is this? Is this a new episode of the show? Oh my gosh, when's the last time that happened? I feel like gay marriage wasn't even legal the last time there was a new episode of Baltimoreans. Yeah, been about a month. Sorry about that. I'm, the purpose of this little message is to explain the drought. It is 100% my fault, but I have a really good reason, I promise, which is this. A couple weeks ago, if you recall, Alan and I discussed on the air here that I had quit my job to pursue making radio and podcasting full-time. Now, I didn't really know what that meant yet when I made that announcement, other than, you know, I had a couple of freelance opportunities I was running down, and I was hoping that I could perhaps string a few of those together for a little while and just kind of see where it took me. So that went on for about two and a half weeks, and then I'm sitting here in my apartment one day doing some work, and I get an email from the executive producer of one of my favorite public radio shows in all the world, with whom I have done some work in the past, saying, I heard on your show that you quit your job. We are looking for people to come in for a few weeks and do some work with us. Would you like to do that? So I fell out of my chair with glee, climbed back into my chair, wrote back and said, yes, absolutely. And now for the last couple of weeks, I have been a producer on this show, which, as I said, is one of my favorite things in the whole world. Favorite things in the world for Sam Dingman, tacos, IPAs, the Baltimore Orioles, doing Baltimoreans, and this show. So I am really, really thrilled. However, it has been taking up all of my time, like all of it. And that's fine. I am really happy about that. That is not a complaint, except that it means that we haven't gotten you a new Baltimoreans, as I said, in a few weeks. And I am sorry about that. Again, that falls on me. I have been totally prioritizing this job. And the good news is that I think now that I'm a few weeks in, I have figured out what the rhythms are, what the cadence of the week is, and that's going to put me in a position to get back into the regular production cycle with Baltimoreans. But I also would like to say... To all of you, thank you very much, not just for your patience in waiting for this new episode, but also because I feel very strongly that I am there at the radio station every day because, in large part, of Baltimoreans. It is through all the work that Alan and I have done on Baltimoreans that I was able to build the skills, whether it's audio editing, prepping interviews, engineering recording sessions, writing copy. All of those things are skills that I have built and honed from sitting down every week to make this thing with all of you. And now I am in a position where a dream that I've had for a long time has literally come true. And I just want you to know that I appreciate that so much. And I, it's not something I take for granted. And Baltimoreans is not going away suddenly. It's just that in the first few weeks of being there, I wanted to demonstrate a very firm commitment to them. But I have no intention of breaking the commitment that Alan and I have also made to all of you, especially since this wouldn't have happened without all of you. So thank you very much again. Apologies for the delay. And with any luck, things will be returning to a somewhat more regular schedule around here at Hootenanny Studios. All right, let's get into episode 125. Baltimoreans is a member of the Baltimore Sports Report Network. Find, find more podcasts like this at BaltimoreSportsReport.com. You're listening to Baltimoreans, baseball things considered. My name is Sam Dingman. This is Alan Smith. Let's get stupid. Baltimoreans. 
Hello, Baltimoreans. How are y'all doing? We hope that you uh, weren't too freaked out by that new introduction. Yes, it uh, it augurs perhaps some further changes coming down the pike, so stay tuned. Uh, but of course, if you're tuned to this episode, which is episode 125, there is a good chance that you have been tuned for the previous 124. And we'd like to take this moment to thank you to those of you who have been here. But if you're new to the Baltimoreans neighborhood, why not surf on over to bmorons.com and see what you've gotten yourself into? Or go look at our Twitter, at bmorons, look upon it and despair. <laughs> you have made yet another bad life decision by joining <laughs> our coterie of maniacs. Episode 125, Sam, did you know that the current asking price for one Cristiano Ronaldo of the Real Madrid soccer club is 125 million euros? 125 million euros to be transferred to a different team. So that's like three billion dollars. <laughs> that's basically how that works. Yeah. <laughs> Did you know, Alan Smith, that 125 was the number of the street that I lived on for a couple of years here in the fair city of New York? And the in only Astoria or this was up north. This was up in uh, Morningside Heights. Morningside Heights. And this was in 2006 and 2007. When I would say the only thing more horrifying than the Orioles' on-field product <laughs> was the cockroach situation in that domicile. And the year 125 is actually the year that the Pantheon was completed in Rome. One of the uh, stellar examples of the Corinthian column in the flesh. I am very glad that you just used the word Pantheon. Uh-huh. Because in the Pantheon of podcast offerings from the Baltimore Sports Report Network... Baltimoreans is but one, and you can find all of our sister wife programs at baltimoresportsreport.com slash network. At some point, we're going to break out exactly which uh, podcast fills which role in the traditional Greek pantheon. But for right now, just go over there if you're craving some more Orioles uh, information and news. That one's, that one's going to take some research. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, on episode 125, we are very pleased to bring you an interview with Dave McKenna who is a sports writer currently for Deadspin, but who in the past has written for Washington City Paper and was at one point personally sued for libel by Washington professional sports team owner Dan Snyder. But we are going to actually talk to him about some of the labor issues surrounding the Orioles and their handling of the canceled games during the week of the Freddie Gray protests, which may not have been as much of a rainbows and sunshine story as it initially appeared. So if you, much like Brian Mattis, suddenly have some free time on your hands, relax, uh, sit back, and enjoy episode 125. Over the past few weeks, the Baltimore Orioles' tangential role in and around the Baltimore police brutality protests have gotten a lot of airtime. One clear feel-good story in all of this has been that the Orioles did right by their employees, making sure everyone got paid even when they couldn't play the games. Or did they? Our guest tonight has some thoughts on the sunshine and good feelings of that particular news story. His name is Dave McKenna, a writer and reporter for Deadspin, who covers a delightful blend of the politics of sports and the sport of politics. Dave, welcome to Baltimoreans. Oh, my pleasure. So, Dave... You've done a lot of outstanding work exposing just how bad Washington professional football team owner Dan Snyder is at being both an owner, not to mention a human being. 
And while we often chastise Peter Angelos for being a bad baseball mind, we do tend to think of him as a mostly morally upstanding public figure who really cares about the well-being of the city of Baltimore, even if he sometimes doesn't seem to care about the well-being of its baseball team. Before we get into the particulars of this most recent labor issue, can you give us a sense of where you think Peter Angelos nets out on the professional sports team owner evilness scale? Well, he has always, he's always lumped with, with Snyder for some reason. I've never understood that because whereas Angelos has not fared well on the field, the teams he, he's, he's, he's put out there have not really been that great for the fans. He's never taken, he's never attacked the fans, which is Dan mm-hmm. Snyder is the fans' worst enemy. Mm-hmm. He, everything is, is, it's all about the gouge. It's all, it's when, when a buddy of mine said, like, he's put a turnstile mentality into being a fan of the team, and mm-hmm. it's like, you, you just have to, a toll, toll booth mentality, you gotta pay for everything, every, every corner. And Angelus has never done that, so I, I this labor situation that we're gonna get into, I mean, it was, that's what mostly surprised me, because Angelus was seen as a man of the people, I mean, all his, his clients, he was the, he was the champion of little guy. You do point out in the piece that the, the positive press that Angelus generated by announcing that all of the Orioles' hourly employees would be compensated for missed time during the week of the protests. You know, there was a lot of good press around that, but it wasn't necessarily true. Um, while staff on the team's payroll was compensated, the group that includes ushers, ticket sellers, and security personnel, that's only a small fraction of the game day stadium staff. So the folks that are selling the food, selling the beer, and cleaning up after everyone just drops their stuff on the way out of the stadium, those are employees of separate organizations with whom the Orioles have service contracts, right? Correct. Yeah, and that, that, when, it, when it first came out, they, they said all employee, all hourly employees who lost money, uh, you know, will be reimbursed. And then and they, everyone repeated that. BuzzFeed was the first to repeat that. And that sounds really good. And I had covered mm-hmm. the, hate, the, the, the hateful uh, situation, labor situation, with the cleanup workers 11 years ago. It was really ugly and dirty. These were, again, these were a lot, he was using homeless people, uh, who, who were coming from the shelters, and, and they were—they'd have to line up at seven o'clock, even for games. You know, sometimes when the extra innings rain delay game would last past midnight, and they wouldn't get paid. The power washers would get six dollars an hour, six fifteen an hour, and yet the clock wouldn't start until the last strike. And so, so they would—they were, you know, on, on duty five hours and weren't getting paid at all, and they were getting docked two hours if they got caught using the bathroom. It was just mm. like the. It was just an ugly, ugly situation. So when the Orioles were getting all this attention, I, I pitched the story as, well, this shows, you know, if things have changed. And so I call, I, I email with, with the, their PR people, because I have the letter, so it clearly says all hourly employees. And so I said, just to, to be sure, this means the cleanup crew is being paid, right? And I get a response from the PR going, I can confirm that all hourly Orioles employees are being paid <laughs> and, and like and she didn't answer the question she answered in a way that misled me right and I, so I, I given the question i had asked and the answer she gave uh, on top of the buzzfeed reporting i thought she was confirming that the buzzfeed report was right all hourly camden yards employees are going to get, get paid which, which was the general perception anyone would get mm-hmm. from reading that and in, fa- in fact she was trying to mislead me while waiting for email, I had called some of the old people who I dealt with 10 years ago, and they said, no, we're not getting paid. So that, that really was what made me want to do the story more than anything. You know, kind of like, you know why the hell? Yeah, you know, I right. Know, I don't know. You, you, you know, this is the FCC, right? I can say whatever the hell I want. Oh, Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, like, I really was pissed. You know, mostly for, for, like that she tried to make me write something that would, would have 
been incorrect. Like, she wouldn't admit that, you know, not everyone's getting paid. And then when you look at it, in the big, big scheme, very few people are getting paid, but a very small percentage because they contract out everything. They can have such a nefarious contract that the, the contractor has to screw over the, uh, the little guy instead of Angelos. Yes, absolutely. The Orioles are responsible for who they sign contracts with. In this case, we're talking about two organizations, I think DNC and, and Kimes, is that right? Uh, yeah, Chimes. I Chimes? Called, is yeah. it Chimes? Kimes? I, yeah. I, I've always said Kimes in my head, and I have no idea why. But <laughs> So those two organizations, but once the Orioles have signed like the contract for the year, do they have any leverage points besides like, hey, we're not going to re-sign with you next year unless you do this? I mean, it's a it's a tricky question because, like, would I, you know, if I were if I were a billionaire, or if if I were a big businessman running a business and had this 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 system available to me, where I could, you know, subcontract the screwing over, essentially, you know, I, I would get it, I get it out of my hair, like exactly. out of my exactly. out of my guilt. Uh, would I and, and, for, and save and save me money? I'd, I'd save me guilt and money. At the same time, you know, am I such a great Gandhi-like figure that I would ignore that? I, I doubt it highly. Yeah. I'm a cheap as hell. But <laughs> so it's a tough call. But yet he's getting all this. If he if he didn't go out and if they didn't go out and trumpet, you know, hey, look how great we are. So that 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 sets you up for okay. Let's look how great you are. Oh, you're not that <laughs> fucking great. Right. Well, yeah. You can't ask for the credit and then try to right. uh, try to avoid the scrutiny. But so I, I actually want to dig in really quickly on that just to make sure folks are really clear on this. When you talk about the the issues that were raised about ten years ago when he was screwing a lot of these homeless workers out of wages to clean up the ballpark, you also point out in your piece that at the time. A pro-labor organization tried to get him to partner with them to make sure that these folks were getting minimum wage. He told them that he was so concerned about maintaining a sort of pro-labor reputation that he agreed to partner with them to kind of advocate for this legislation and then backed out of it at the last minute. Isn't that right? Correct. Correct. He, he, he just ignored the, the pledge. He, he, got, he made the pledge so they would not demonstrate on opening day. They had a, a demonstration planned on opening day. And uh, he, he made this pledge right before that saying, I'm going to, and not only did he say he'd, be, he'd support their thing, he also agreed to make up the difference in the, in the interim. Like he was going to out of pocket. It ended up not being, I mean, by, by baseball standards, because this was like at the end of the Albert Bell contract, which it was $40 million or some <laughs> outrageous thing. And, and this, was, this would have been you know, 10 or 20 or $30,000. I can't remember the exact number. So they called off the demonstration, and, right. and then, he didn't, then he didn't live up to it, which is kind of genius, you know, an evil genius move there. So one of the things that's really interesting as we're talking about the whole labor angle here is that the Orioles also employ a number of members of one of the most powerful labor unions in the entire world, that being the players on the team who are members of the Major League Baseball Players Association. Correct. And Angelos, is, is, was, his pro-labor bona fides were, were, were cemented during the baseball strike when he said, right. um, you know, like all the, all the owners are talking about scabs, and he says, no way, we're not using scabs. And, and that, you know, that made him, the players like him, and it made the uh, labor like him, because it's symbolic, you know, like the reputation of labor, what he can do for you, is, is, I think there is a huge trickle-down effect from something that exposed Yes. Well, so that that gets into the issue that we often find very interesting on our show, which is in the U.S., when we talk about labor politics, we tend to fixate on groups like teachers, public transit employees, auto manufacturing workers and the labor unions for those groups, which tend to speak with a fairly unified voice when it comes to standing up for workers rights. 
But there's this whole other category of union employees, screenwriters, movie stars, professional athletes, <laughs> who seem to benefit from all the nice things that collective bargaining can provide for its members, but then don't seem to be active parts of the labor conversation when it comes to things like homeless janitors getting stiffed out of a day's pay. <laughs> so yeah. should, we, should we expect more from players as well as team ownership when we talk about these issues? Well, I, I, I again, pointing to myself, I haven't, you know, marched for the homeless lately either. So <laughs> I, 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 it would be hard for me. Yet, yet, if I come out and say what a great labor dude I am, uh, uh, for in area A, yet I'm screwing over the littlest guy in area B. Then that, I think you're you're open, you're fair game for criticism. But just in general, to go search out every rich guy and say what have you done for the homeless or, or, or what have you done for the little guy? You know that's uh, then you got to look in the mirror. And you know I, I don't think many of us can can throw stones. Fair <laughs> enough. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. We talked a lot on our show during the Freddie Gray protests about how important and powerful the voices of people like Adam Jones and Buck Showalter were in voicing support for the protesters, which was kind of remarkable. Absolutely. Um, and that was how my story was pitched, like that, that the, the Orioles are now the, the team of, of, of the common man. You know, this is like because this all happened very quickly that right. the manager said what he said. And it was very incredible in this day and age for him, I thought for him to say that. I mean, it was yeah. fantastic, and it was and at the time, you know, very brave, very very brave. And then and then John Angelos for him to come out and and say really kind of radical yeah. things. Um, I I hear that, and then I hear that they're throwing money at the little guy. So that was that was how my story started. Mm -hmm. And then when I find out that it was that the team wasn't uh, actually living up to its press, uh, that's when I that I changed course. So just to out myself fully, um, I am sort of a, a lefty organizer and, and think a lot about how, how, you, how you push political power and those sorts of things. And I'm actually, that's one of the reasons why I thought that the, your Deadspin article was so fascinating, because I think that there is always this moment when someone claims to do something and then turns out not to have been doing it, when you actually have a chance to put real interesting public pressure on them. And I'm, like, I'm actually really interested in like the idea that powerful brands like the Orioles or like John Hopkins or any kind of other anchor institution, the Redskins even, can actually be better employees by who they contract with. Do you Have you seen any way for Orioles or other sports teams, sports teams are like usually pretty bad at this, but to actually kind of play a role of being a responsible steward? I think that's a pipe dream. I, got, I mean, they're, they're business. They're, they're just businessmen. There's obviously a trickle down. Obviously, mm -hmm. uh, like if if the owner is out to gouge, then like from the littlest guy is going to be out to gouge. So like Dan Snyder, like one of the my favorite the, the things I ever found was him selling beer in the bathrooms at FedEx Field. You you could buy beer in the bathrooms, and they have like <laughs> right right next to these urinals, these guys with beer coolers. It's so disgusting, and that's definitely it was a trickle down of the money uh, money for. You know, at all costs, kind yeah. of uh, kind of mentality. There's no question some organization that's looked up to as much as any sports team is could have an incredible impact if it would take incredibly moral stance. But again, that that that's that's kind of wacky to, to ask to expect it. I mean, mm -hmm. I, I can't think of mm -hmm. any. It definitely would have to be done right. Like like uh, Buck Showalter didn't call a press conference to you know mouth right. these he crazy like the things. The situation a... uh, the situation came about, and he responded in an incredible way. There's no way that that didn't 
affect a lot of lives and a lot of futures. I really believe that what he said was like one of the most powerful uh, yeah. civil rights statements of our time. I really do. Absolutely. Well, and there's there's an interesting way of looking at the, the trickle-down effect you've just mentioned because chimes or chimes or whatever it is uh, <laughs> comes out looking really hideous in your piece. Um, you know, this guy, uh, just to name him because he seems like a real slime ball, uh, Levy Rabinowitz, I believe is his name. Um, I couldn't believe, I couldn't believe he, he's trying to like buddy, buddy me. Yeah. Well, these guys don't get, they don't expect any, they don't expect it's like the plants closing. What the hell? Yeah. Well, and what does he call it? He says, like uh, snow day. the ambition system is the way that they give people work yeah, yeah, on yeah. game day. Um, yeah, that was like Orwellian in the ambition system. I, yeah, I really, really. It was creepy, creepy. Yeah, it sounds like something out of like the tenets of a cult. In terms of the trickle down effect that you're talking about, he clearly feels like he can run these shady labor practices in Peter Angelos's organization because Peter Angelos, among people who know how he actually operates, is clearly open to pulling the plug on people after he's promised them opportunity. And Angelos, he has a lot of cover here because it, there, there's a lot of layers. Like, he doesn't own the stadium. He leases the stadium. So there's so many different ways to have contracts. You could have a contract with the team, like, like clearly the uh, ushers do, or the cleanup crew is through the stadium authority, whereas mm-hmm. I'm sure Angelos has, has some sort of a, you know veto power, I would assume, just like they do on announcers and things like that. Or they they could put pressure on you know they would have a seat at the table when when contracts are thrown out. Uh, the contract legally is with the the stadium authority. It's hard to it's hard to to, to nail anyone down on this. Hmm. Unless when they go out trying to get credit for stuff. <laughs> right and right and the stadium authority is then through the city of Baltimore and that's a whole yeah it's a whole yeah. different ballgame. It's game. a state yes yeah, it's, it's state 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 organization. I believe. Okay. State and state and city yeah. Well, and the the amount of cover that he has in this situation is probably what made him think that he was going to be able to get away with this PR push and come out smelling like roses until, you know, someone like you actually started digging and found out that the picture was way more complex. I, I, yeah, I do not think it was contrived. I think it was like they saw a scenario where they could look good, and so they took advantage of it, just like Buck, Buck Showalter sure. saw a scenario where he Raising could Raising or good. lowering to the moment. Yeah, he, he rose to hit the occasion, and they sunk to the bottom. Well, we have we have one more one more question for you, and we would be remiss if we didn't ask it. For folks who don't know, Dan Snyder tried to sue you at one point for libel a few years ago for a brilliant yep. piece you wrote for the Washington City paper entitled A Cranky Redskin Fan's Guide to Dan Snyder, which listed a series of alphabetized facts about Dan Snyder being a clueless, insensitive moron. Snyder filed suit against you in the city paper, then admitted he actually hadn't read the article, dropped the lawsuit, thereby successfully making himself look even more like of a doofus than your piece could ever have made him out to be. So tell us about what happened. He, he got the crap beat out of him. It was the stupidest thing he ever did. Yeah. He didn't even have me on a name misspelling. And it was, it's taught now in law schools and, and PR classes like <laughs> really? uh, how not to do things. He dropped the suit the, the day before the New York Times was about to print the article saying that where he claimed that he hadn't read, you know, he thought it would make him look good if he claimed he hadn't read the story for some reason. That were, wow. And that would have presented <laughs> le- legal hurdles that uh, that that would not have been surmountable. But he he wouldn't have won anyway. It was a dis- it was a, a disaster of a suit. So he 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 got out uh, while he could. So I guess the the question that sort of prompted for us is on our show we have sometimes featured quote unquote interviews with quote-unquote Dan Duquette, 
which we will neither confirm or deny are actually me doing a terrible, like, friend Flidstone impression. <laughs> and we've had Dan, quote-unquote, Dan Duquette say all sorts of things about himself that aren't uh, factually true, but which we think feel true to Orioles fans <laughs> who find him somewhat inscrutable. Where do you think the line between parody and libel is in sports journalism, which one could argue is sort of an absurd thing in the first place? Uh, you know, I, that's above my pay grade. Because my... my, my <laughs> My piece wasn't parody. It was uh, there wasn't a thing in there that wasn't hadn't been reported before. And there was he could have challenged me on any fact. And I had de- I was dealing. They are the phoniest motherfuckers you'll ever deal with. Their PR staff and and Snyder. Like I had been dealing with them throughout. Like this the story came out in November, and they sued me in February only because the Washington Post found out that they were trying to get me fired and wrote a story about it. And they panicked. It was not. They weren't ready to sue. They were never really going to sue because they hmm. had no case. Um, so the, the Perry thing, I mean, it, the bar is really high to win a lawsuit, even if, even if I had gotten something wrong. And again, he didn't, in his complaint, he had to make stuff up. He said I, he said I was anti-Semitic, the publication was anti-Semitic, and that I attacked his cancer-surviving wife, which, which had I done either, or had I been anti-Semitic and attacked his wife, it doesn't make me out to be a great person, but it's not illegal. And I hadn't <laughs> done, I, and he was making that up. They called it bluff, and he didn't know what to do. And he had nothing, and so he ended up doing the worst thing possible for his sake. It was good for me. I mean, make people, a million people read a story that, you know, no, otherwise no one had ever heard of. My mom, you know, had read it, but um, <laughs> yeah. my mom and Dan, Dan Snyder. Well, uh, we will, uh... and, and only one of them would admit to, to having read it. But anyway, no one ever wins these cases. Had, had, had right. I really made stuff up or said horrible things... The, the, the sad truth, and I'm not saying this is a, a great thing or, or, or a horrible thing, but the truth is he, he wouldn't have won anyway. You, right. know, you just don't win these cases. And when you're famous, it's one of the, the, the burdens of fame in this country is you can say anything you want about it. <laughs> you pretty much can. Yeah. Uh, I don't recommend that. I don't, it's not, I don't think it's fair. Well, and it's, also, it's also questionable what amount of good name he would actually have recovered by uh, <laughs> by winning the case, even if he had carried it all the way through to the end. I mean, you already had written the piece, and him suing you in the first place already got, as you say, the million well, more he, eyeballs to the piece. He sued for $2 million. That was what his original suit was. Hmm. And, uh, of course, I don't, I don't have, you know, I, I didn't have $20. <laughs> so I, I never was going to lose anything, but then when it, when it came out and he was getting the shit kicked out of a PR purpose, he said, well, he was going to give, when he wins, he's going to give the money to the homeless. So I was thinking, like, I got nothing. So the best case scenario is he gets my house, he wins everything, I'm homeless, and then I, I get the two million. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I, and also, I'm I'm somehow reminded of when when Donald Trump said that if Barack Obama admitted that he wasn't born in the U.S., Donald Trump would donate five million dollars to the Chicago public schools or something. It's like, <laughs> how about if we skip a step here, Dan slash Donald, and just make the donation? <laughs> well, I, you know, pressure, like, uh, just like, uh, the, 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 to turn this back to the orth, uh, under pressure, people say stupid things when the, when the microphone is put in their face. So uh, but that's what happened with Snyder. That's what happened when, uh, when the Orioles were asked if uh, they really were paying people. <laughs> uh, Dave McKenna, thank you very much for joining us tonight. Everybody out there in listener land, please check out Dave McKenna's writing at Deadspin. We will, of course, link to all the pieces that we have mentioned tonight. And uh, Dave, thank you very much. Thank you, guys. Well, ladies and gentlemen, you've just heard a lot. 
We've just filled up your brain with nonsense in our customary fashion. A lot of truth in that nonsense, though. A lot of truth. But before we let you out of here, before we let you out of the Baltimoreans listening pod into which you have, by your own will and volition, encased yourself, <laughs> we'd like to remind you that no episode of Baltimoreans would be complete without the ruminations of my esteemed co-host, Alan Smith. Because, Sam, episode 125 yielded a remarkable discovery vis-a-vis Shakespeare's 125th sonnet. This, of course, is one of the 154 total sonnets, and a specific sonnet which falls in the Fair Youth series, that is, one of the poems Shakespeare wrote to an unknown younger man. There is much scholarly debate, of course, about who the Fair Youth might be, and what his relationship is with the Bard. Is he a young nobleman who is receiving advice from a generic older friend? Is he a cautionary tale of what to avoid in life from a middle-aged and washed-up William himself? Or is he even the admission of a romantic interest in, or an actual relationship with, another man? All of these interpretations, however, are incorrect. In fact, on close reading, Sonnet 125 appears to be about Dylan Bundy. The sonnets, each of which hold the classic three-quatrain and rhymed couplet format, are some of the most lyrical and magical of Shakespeare's works, and every time I reread them I discover some new turn of phrase or hidden meaning, but I was surprised, Baltimoreans, to discover that Sonnet 125, penned as it was near the end of the 16th century, would be so clearly about the Oriole's young starter. Weren't aught to me I bore the canopy, the sonnet begins, with my extern the outward honoring, or laid great bases for eternity, which proves more short than waste or ruining? The speaker here is remarking that earthly endeavors are meaningless, given that the ravages of time, or ruining, eventually destroy them. Canopy, used here, would be a reference to the canopy held aloft in celebration, usually to victory on the field of battle, or in this case, the baseball diamond. Laid Great Bases is a classic double entendre from the Bard, both referencing the promising potential of the Orioles' roster, a solid base lacking a clear ace, and also the bases on the field of play. The quatrain concludes, however, with one of Shakespeare's most famous motifs, questioning mortality, and if time will eventually prove ruinous to the hopes that Bundy ever contributes on a meaningful level at the major leagues. The second quatrain reads, Have I not seen dwellers on form and favor? Lose all and more by paying too much rent. For compounds sweet, foregoing simple savor, pitiful thrivers in their gazing spent. Again, connections to Bundy, our fair youth, are profoundly and nostradamusly clear. We've seen again and again that the Orioles lose all and more by paying too much for young arms that, though their potential is off the charts, never quite managed to coalesce into something capable of sustained major league production. Our pitiful attempts at luxurious living are foiled again and again with arm soreness, and this quatrain hints that the Orioles are over-investing in a commodity that's just too hard to guess correctly about. But then comes the classic Shakespearean switch, in which he changes the direction of the poem. Here, we get an open admission of love for Bundy, however worried we may be that the most recent bout of arm soreness will, once again, limit his availability in 2015. He writes, No, let me be obsequious in thy heart and take thou my oblation, but poor but free, which is not mixed with seconds, knows no art, but mutual render only me for thee. Take my love and adoration, Bundy, the poem is saying. There is no art or misdirection here. 
there is nothing more to say, then, except for the final rhymed couplet. Hence, thou suburned informer, a true soul, when most impeached stands, least in thy control. It seems so clear, morons, that I hardly need to complete the analysis, but this final two lines invokes a suburned informer, which presumably is someone in the Orioles development system, perhaps a team doctor or someone working with Bundy on his delivery mechanisms, to focus on the really important stuff, that is, control. Even when all these problems arise around Bundy's arm, the fair youth really needs to keep working on control, get those walk rates down, and locate his fucking fastball. And if all that happens, Baltimoreans, the bard himself promises us that Bundy's latest bout of arm soreness will be a thing of the past, and that we will see meaningful innings from him after the All-Star break. Ladies and gentlemen, if the ruminations of Alan Smith, if the poetry with which he's just provided you is not enough of a salve to your <laughs> wounded heart when, as you have ingested this latest development in the Dylan Bundy saga, maybe a stiff drink is more <laughs> your speed. Perhaps you'd like to announce that fact to the world by virtue of a shirt bearing the Orioles logo which says, this team makes me drink. If you fall into that category, you might be interested in checking out shirtsarecool.com, which is a t-shirt shop run by a gentleman named Matt, who's a fan of our program. Thank you very much, Matt. And he has done us the solid of extending the following offer right now. If you go to shirtsarecool.com, that's right, shirtsarecool.com, and enter the code BALTIMORONS at checkout, you will receive 20% off of your order. Now that's just that's not only good on the this team makes me drink shirt. That's site wide. So use the fact that you listen to our show to save money on Matt's website. Thank you very much to our guest this evening, Dave McKenna. Check out Dave's work at Deadspin. There are no sacred cows in mm -hmm. Dave McKenna's work and, mm -hmm. and we appreciate that about him very much as we appreciate him joining us on the show tonight. Also check us out on Twitter at bmorons and on our website bmorons.com. Music on the show, ladies and gentlemen, was, of course, our theme song written and performed by Marshall York. The song Working for Another Song by the band Town Hall. The song Birdland by the band Weather Report. And here on the outro, behind my voice as I speak these words, it's the Black Crows with Kicking My Heart Around. Now, Alan Smith, um, we asked some really tough questions mm -hmm. about the nature of the labor conversation in this country yep. on the episode this evening. Yep. And I think it, it's safe to say that there is only one question more serious yeah. than any of those which we posed this evening, and it, it is this. What do you call Henry Arudia <laughs> when he is combining black and or green teas into a lightly effervescent fermented drink for the supposed health benefits of said beverage i have no idea you would call him henry kombucha 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 works better <laughs> thank you for the save henry kombucha you zach britton that one 